Many in the world today are sharing the good news of freedom in Jesus by surrendering our old ways and sinful nature at the cross. Although surrender and freedom are not two words one thinks of joining together, the same can be said of the roles of the prophet and the evangelist. These two ministries are oftentimes joined at the hip. Look no further than John the Baptist as a prime example. In many instances, the prophet will warn of impending judgment from God if there is not a change in direction, many times followed by the evangelist coming in and sharing the gifts and joy found in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Join us now as we drill down on the biblical definitions and examples of prophets and evangelists, as well as modern-day objects and illustrations of these two vital ministries. I am Mark Russick, and you are listening to The Russick Outlook. As always, just my opinion. Hello, good day, everybody. My name is Mark Russick. You're listening to the Russick Outlook. Thank you very much for joining. Today, we're going to be discussing the prophet and the evangelist. Uh, this stems from the fivefold ministry. I began this last week by unveiling, or I should say, looking into the ministry of the apostle. Uh, I did this by looking at what is the biblical definition and, and examples that we can look at, as well as do we see any modern day counterparts. I'm going to take that same or similar approach by by breaking this down with uh, definitions, examples, um, but also in, in in the instance of the prophet and the evangelist, I believe oftentimes they're kind of joined at the hip. So I'm going to show you some examples, uh, both Old Testament and New Testament, of individuals operating as both a prophet and an evangelist. Uh, so hopefully you'll appreciate this type of approach. These are uh, essential. I mean, it, this is all. Uh, part of the the outpouring of Holy Spirit gifts that He's given us uh, to basically encourage us and strengthen us, and I'll and I'll break this down a little bit in a second here. So let me pause for a second. Uh, if you appreciate and uh, uh, w- want to see more information like this, please hit the like and the subscribe button that's coming across the screen. Uh, not across the screen. I keep saying that, but wherever you are, whatever platform you're on, whether it's YouTube or the podcast or you know, whatever. Uh, again, this helps us boost up in the rankings and gets uh, uh, our, our information up in the algorithms so that we can engage people because that's ultimately what we're trying to do, pointing people to the truth and, and letting them make informed decisions. Whether you're a believer in Jesus or not, I mean, you know, my approach is always going to be the same. Hopefully, this gives you information to consider if you're not a believer, and if you are, this is information that you can help help strengthen your faith, but also maybe give you information that could help others uh, in in their walk. So, again, if you could hit that like and subscribe button, it would be greatly appreciated, as well as go over to the Russick Outlook, and if you wouldn't mind just joining our email list so that we can keep you notified about things that are coming up new topics, and uh, as well as I'm going to be pointing to some new developments that are going to be coming in 2022, 2022. Oh, that's a little bit of a tongue twister. It's right around the corner, as, as I sit here in early November. So at any rate, uh, let, let's break this down. Let's get into this, the prophet and the evangelist. So as I said in the beginning, this stems from Ephesians 4.11. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. So we're going to focus our attention today on the prophets and the evangelists. These are ministry gifts that are outpoured from Holy Spirit uh, to the church. 
and why do we want these? And and and, and this is a little bit of a just a, a minor uh, um, a recap of last week, where it says so Christ gave himself the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Why did he do this? Why are these gifts essential? Why are these ministries essential? To equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So this is ultimately about becoming mature in Christ, becoming mature believers, mature uh, disciples of Jesus, and, and and again, it as as we're all operating in our lane and in our gifts and in our callings, then the church itself becomes that much stronger and effective and ultimately becomes mature. So the role of the prophet. In the Old Testament, a prophet is a person, it's either male or female, functions as God's spokesperson. They are commissioned by him to deliver his word either to individuals or to groups. The prophet receives the word of God through various means, including dreams, visions, and theophanies. In the New Testament, a prophet is one whom God has equipped, alongside apostles, pastors, and teachers, to lead the church for the edification and the encouragement of believers. A prophet will always, always have the law of God at the foundation of his message. I give you an example I'm referencing here, 1 Kings 18, 16 through 39. This is where Elijah encounters the, the, uh, the prophets of Baal. And, uh, you know, you, I'm not going to read the whole thing. You can break that down. But Elijah was, you know, by himself, not by himself, by figuratively by himself as part of the only person, but stood against up to 450 false teachers. Uh, um, and, and I would say, uh, um, carriers of the enemy's word, um, and, and you know he stood there toe to toe because he his message and his backing was on the law of God, and God was on his side, and he obeyed what God told him to do, and heeded those instructions, and basically, um, you know, just uh, eventually wind up having that whole entire uh, area just eliminated because again these were. Uh, enemy, these were agents of Satan, I should say. So a prophet. In the Old Testament, you have your major prophets and your minor prophets. So your major prophets are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, which was written by Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Those are your five major prophets, your six books. The Old Testament minor prophets, and it's Basically, these are, you know, they're smaller books. It's Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Michael, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Moses is regarded as the most important Old Testament Hebrew prophet. So, you know, it's for those, and, and it's it's most widely considered that the book of Genesis and the first five books, for that matter, of the Old Testament has been written by Moses. So Moses there was, you know, if, especially when you go into the book of Genesis, where you have your pr- first prophecy in, in uh, chapter 315, it was Moses who was penning that. Uh, then you have your New Testament prophets, not as many examples, but John the Baptist. So let me just say that I would consider John the Baptist 
one who would operate in both the ministry of the prophet as well as the evangelist. Why? Because he was calling people to say the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming, you know, alerting the, the people of the day, but also uh, pointing people to salvation because he was pointing people ultimately to Jesus. Jesus was a prophet. Jesus uh, extensively, you know, spoke about not only re a high regard of the Old Testament prophets, but prophesying things to come. And, you know, many people know that, he, you know, he prophesied of things that would be happening around the world today uh, before his return. And for those of you who, and I happen to believe that, you know, we are in those days, we are in the days that are drawing nearer to the return of Jesus. Uh, but I always say, you know, we don't know the date. I'm not one to even get into any of that. Could be, could be tomorrow, could be five years, could be 10 years, could be 100 years. I don't know. Nobody knows but the Father. Uh, but, but again, if you look at the signs that Jesus said would be around, then we can say, you know, it could be closer than we think. There are roughly, oh, I'm sorry, and John was also obviously a highly regarded New Testament prophet, <clears throat> excuse me, having written the book of Revelation on the island of Patmos. So there are roughly 70 plus prophets or prophetesses uh, mentioned in the uh, in the Bible. Most you, you'll, you're going to find in the Old Testament, but you know, throughout. So prophecy is probably one third of the Bible, uh, roughly. So, you know, between 25 to 30, 33% of the Bible um, it, it is prophetic. And, and it's, re, you know, it's relying upon these individuals that I'm mentioning here and others that are speaking forth the word of God. So that, you know, that is the role. And these are some of ex the examples of the prophet. True prophets never spoke on their own authority or shared their personal opinions, but rather they delivered the message that God himself gave them. That's going to be important when, you know, in a couple of slides from now, I'm going to start to look at some potential modern day uh, um, individuals. God promised Moses, now go, because, you know, Moses was like, you know, what am I going to do? I can't speak. He even had a, a speech impediment. You know, he he was looking at his own capabilities rather than to God. But he said, God said, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. God assured Moses, I will raise up for my, pro for my people a prophet like you, and I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. Deuteronomy 18.18. 18. So again, you know, God speaking to individuals, telling them, I'm going to put the words into your mouth. The Lord says to Jeremiah, I have put my words in your mouth, Jeremiah 1.9. In Ezekiel, God commissioned Ezekiel by saying, you must speak my words, Ezekiel 2.7. Many of the Old Testament prophetic books begin with these words. The word of the Lord came to, or came to me, or thus saith the Lord, a lot of times you'll hear. Amos claimed, this is what the Lord says. Some examples here are Hosea 1-2, Joel 1-1, Micah 1-1, Zephaniah 1-1, Jonah 1-1, and Amos 1-3. So again, a lot of times they'll begin it by, you know, this is what the word of the Lord says. This is what the Lord told me to speak. And, and you know, and, and we're talking about those who are true prophets. Pentecost, New Testament fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. The divine inspiration and authority of the Old Testament prophetic voice is nowhere more clearly affirmed than in 2 Peter 1, 20 through 21. 
Here you go. No prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had in its origin in the human will, but prophets through humans spoke from God as they were carried along by Holy Spirit. On the day of Pentecost, Peter declared that unlike the more limited exercise of prophecy during the time of the Old Covenant, God would henceforth pour out his Spirit on all people, Acts 2.17. He is referencing what the, uh, what the prophet Joel said. Peter said the result would be a fulfillment of God's words. Here you go. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. So here you have the Old Testament meeting the New Testament. And, you know, if if you go back to uh, when the Holy Spirit came upon people and they were speaking in other languages, the people of the day were accusing them of being drunk. And, you know, Peter, I'm paraphrasing here, but Peter pretty much said, you know, this is morning. They're not drunk of, of wine or alcohol, but but this is the, the pouring out of Holy Spirit, just as the Apostle Joel had prophesied. So, you know, there you have it where Peter recognized that what he was in the midst of and what he was seeing was the fulfillment of what was spoken about by the by by uh, I'm sorry the the prophet Joel. So interesting how, how the two may join. And I will say, it's it's very difficult for a prophet in the sense of this: if they're a true prophet of God, if they speak something, they may not necessarily see it come to pass, or they may be pointing people to change their behavior. And I'm going to give you an example of that in a second. And if they do, then that judgment will not come upon them. Or a lot of times, if you think about, uh, you know, we're talking about uh, er earlier John on the island of Patmos and the things that he wrote and spoke, you know, there's no way that he could really understand a lot of it uh, about what was coming based upon what his knowledge of the culture of that day was. And you can say, say the same for Daniel. So those are, you know, two of the, 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 the more prominent books in both the Old Testament and New Testament that prophecies uh, or prophesied to the, the events and the things that will be coming prior to the Son of God coming back or the return or the second coming of Jesus. So they don't necessarily, you know, they're writing these things down, but they won't necessarily see it until, you know, I, I, when they're in heaven and, you know, that's revealed. But they had to write these things down and speak it out based upon their conviction that they were hearing correctly from from the Lord Jesus Christ. So I wanted to give you the example of Jonah, which I believe is, is the quintessential example in the Old Testament of both the evangelist and the prophet. Um, and I'm going to point a couple of things here that I think is important. So most people are familiar with the story of Jonah and what they call the whale. And they kind of, they allude to it as being this fun sort of story being, you know, the guy gets swallowed by a whale and three days later gets spit out. There's a, it's a lot more than that. And, and I'm going to break this down a little bit for you, but just follow me. Cause I want to, I want to bring you to something that I believe is very, very important. Um, so Jonah begins with the word of the Lord came to Jonah saying of Amittai, go to the city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. 
But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. So the word of the Lord came to him. He told him to go to Nineveh, this wicked city, which I'm sure Jonah knew about. And he did not want to go there. He did not want to uh, bring this because really, if you think about it, and this is very often the case, God, and I believe, he shows us these things in prophecy to warn us. It's, it's a, I believe prophecy is a gift of mercy where un, unless you change course, if you're heading in the wrong direction, and I'm going to show you it's the wrong direction by giving you these signposts of things that would be coming. And, you know, we can look at things that we see around the world today pointing to the return of Jesus. It's, you know, it's everywhere. It's over the top. Um, but but at any rate, I, I believe by showing you that and showing you consistently how many things have, you know, I, I said approximately two-thirds, of, uh, a third of the Bible is prophecy, and I'd say that roughly half of that more, two-thirds, has already been fulfilled. So if you think about things that were written about, you know, uh, hundreds or if not thousands of years beforehand then came to pass, that's giving the credibility to the Word of God. That's giving you comfort in saying, boy, this is accurate, so that you can, you know, change course if you need to or stay the course, you know, or, you know, or, or wherever you are. So Jonah is, is to operate as a prophet, but he's also to warn people, to point people to stay away from, ultimately, uh, to stay away from hell and, and enter into the potential of of going into heaven. And why do I say that? So if you're following me on video, let me switch to the right. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord because he's in the belly of the fish now, or, or what we would know or, or, or say, okay, that's it. Jonah prayed unto the Lord, uh, his God, out of the fish's belly. And I said, I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord, and he heard me out of the belly of hell. Uh, out of the hell cried, I and thou heard my voice, for thou hast cast me into the deep, in the midst of the seas, and the floods compassed about me, thy billows and thy waves passed over me. Then I said, I am cast out of thy sight, yet I will look again toward thy holy temple. So I believe, and I think this is very clear, that uh, the Lord was showing and bringing Jonah to hell. Uh, because it, why? It says, the waters compassed about me even to the soul. The depth closed about uh, closed me round about. The weeds were wrapped about my head. I went down to the bottoms of the mountains. The earth with her bars was about me forever. So the bottom of the mountains in, in the bottom of the sea is where hell is. And I, and I did a, a, a study on this, the locations and the origins of hell. Um, but just, you know, I, I, I can't, you know, break all that down for the sake of time. But what I'm getting at here is the Lord took Jonah and showed Je Jonah just how horrible and the depravity and the um, absolute horror of hell is prior to him eventually going to Nineveh. Uh, let me just continue with what this says here. Uh, th thou hast brought up my life from cor corruption, O Lord my God, when my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to me in thy holy temple, that they observe lying vanities, forsake their own mercy, but I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay I, I will pay that, that I have vowed salvation is of the Lord. 
And the Lord spake to the fish and vomited Jonah and to the dry land. So, another reason I am pointing you that this is without question that that uh, he experienced hell. I'm going to point to uh, Matthew 12:40. This is Jesus speaking. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall be the Son of Man three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So for those of you who don't know, uh, you know, for those three days between crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus was in the heart of the earth in, in a number of locations um, and, and, he, and eventually went to heaven to, uh, to the Father. But part of his objective and part of his mission was he needed to go to uh, the origins of hell, and he eventually led a, a, a train of captives free and up into heaven. And again, that's that's another um, story, not a story, it's, it's accurate, but I just want to point to the fact that um, Jonah w- was given a glimpse, a very serious glimpse of hell before he was able to warn the people of Nineveh. And then in closing, I'll just say that Jesus, Matthew 16, 18, and I say unto thee, Thou art Peter, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I really want to stress the importance of Jesus and teaching of hell and warning of hell, because so often today, you know, people are telling you about the Lord, but they're warning you, and the people will get mocked, and they'll say, oh, you're nothing but fire and brimstone and this and that. So let me just pause for a second and tell you a little bit about hell. And what is it? It is specifically mentioned 32 times and referenced 162 times in the Bible. Here is Jesus' own descriptions of it. Seven times he mentions it's weeping and gnashing of teeth. The fire is not quenched. Worm never dies. It is a place of outer darkness. It is a place where one is tormented by flames and past memories. There is a great gulf fixed between hell and paradise. By far, the majority of scriptural teaching on hell comes from Jesus himself. He taught it far more than he did about heaven. Jesus' ministry warns about hell. Why? Because it's an act of love. It's an act of mercy. So I I just want to point to the fact that when, you know, we're we're telling, where people are telling you or warning you or helping you, hopefully, to avoid hell, you're you're using Jesus' own example. In Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says this, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So, you know, and I give you some other examples on this slide. But, you know, my point here is that this is the role of the prophet. It's warning you against not only, you know, what potentially lies on the other side of eternity, and but also, the, you know, the good side of it being going to heaven, but, you know, this is the judgment of God. This is the warnings of God. This is God's mercy crying out to people. So what are some modern day examples? Uh, let's see here. So I'm giving you, let's go, go to David Wilkerson uh, on the bottom here. And these were his words that were written in 1986. He said that and this is a minister in New York City. For those of you who are not familiar with David Wilkerson's ministry, he built a church uh, um, in Times Square in the middle of New York City. It's a wonderful church. It's called Times Square Church. Um, it's, it's thriving today. Um, but he, say, he said this, I see a plague coming on the world and the bars, churches, and government will shut down. 
The plague will hit New York City and shake it like it has never been shaken. The plague is going to force prayerless believers into radical prayer and into their Bibles, and repentance will come from the cry from the man of God in the pulpit, and out of it will come a third great awakening that will sweep America and the world. So a lot of times people in these past year and a half, two years with the advent of COVID have gone back to this prophecy. Now, David Wilkerson has has since gone on to be with the Lord. He's no longer with us. But they stand upon this as being a, a prophetic warning about what was to come from COVID. And, you know, you can make your own distinction. What I want to point to, though, is where he says the Third Great Awakening, because this is a little bit of a source of contention amongst different people in the body. Other examples I'm giving you, Patricia King, wonderful ministry out of Canada. Uh, Kim Clement, many people are very familiar with. He's no longer with us as well. Then there's a gentleman out of Texas named Chuck Pierce, and he wrote this in September of 2019. At the beginning of the Hebraic year, 5780, we will, which is 2020, we will face a massive plague-like invasion that would test us until Passover and that nations would come into turmoil until that time. The Lord showed me the enemy engineered something to bring fear to the nations and disrupt economies around the world. Now, mind you, this is a good four or five months before uh, COVID even began to get some notoriety, I'm going to say in January. Um, so this is maybe four or five months beforehand. So people are pointing you know, to that, to what Chuck said. Um, other people, I'm going to give you Martin Luther King. Uh, you know, many people believe that he, he was another modern day prophet. And, you know, his famous speech, I have a dream that one day the nation, this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We will hold these truths to be self-evident and that all men are created equal. So obviously he was a tremendous uh, minister and leader of the civil rights movement, tragically uh, assassinated. But his legacy, his mark, you know, is is part of the historical landmark and foundation of America. And, you know, a lot of times people would equate what he was doing to what Billy Graham was following up on. This is where, you know, I I think there's people who even gave sermons, the prophet and the evangelist pointing to Martin Luther King and and Billy Graham. And they worked together. They did some things together. Um, Other things that I, I, I want to point out, because I would be remiss if I didn't, so you have so many people prophesying and speaking about what was happening in this past election in America in 2020, people standing in the gap praying. I'm showing you some examples here of, of people praying in Washington, not only for President Trump, but for the nation. And, you know, a lot of these people were mocked, but this is, was more about the policies that uh, um, 45, he was 45, that he carried out and particularly as it impacted the church, and he was pointing people to the importance of prayer, asking for prayer. Um, he was by far, in terms of um, aligning with biblical principles, he, by far he was the strongest in terms of Christianity, uh, and, and I would say uh, Judaism as well, where he, his, uh, he did tremendous things for our relationship with, with Israel he was by far the strongest pro-life president um, and, and, and a number of other areas, you know, strong economy and whatnot, but religious freedom. He fought for religious freedom around the world. Uh, he was the only American president to go to the UN 
uh, and to speak to a lot of these uh, Middle Eastern and, and, and North African nations and that were oppressing people and that were killing people for their religion. And it wasn't just Christianity. You know, it could be Jews. It could be, you know, other different minority religions. So he fought for that religious freedom. So these were, you know, things that, that lined up, plus, you know, the policy of saving a lot of Christians and Jews, um, the, his, the American military, as well as Europe and NATO and others that joined with them in fighting and defeating uh, ISIS. That cannot be minimized, the impact of, of what that did and how a lot of the modern church grew out of that. And then, you know, we're following, here I am in 2021, policies that were opposite of that, policies that have turned the Middle East back into, well, I would consider far worse conditions, into a bigger turmoil with, you know, uh, I, I, you know what, I'm, I'm getting off track, I apologize. But the reason I want to point this out is there are many modern day people who claim to be operating in the prophetic, and they were pointing to an election victory or they would give certain dates that this will happen by this date or this will happen by that date. And I would say that, you know, those people who gave specific dates and that things would happen and missed it, a lot of times they're not owning up to that. And I believe that's a little bit of a, that it's a blemish on the body. Um, Patricia King was actually, I'm pointing her out because she was, she was concerned about it. You know, there, there's, I'm talking about people with, I have great empathy for and love for, um, and, and I'm leading up to something here in a second. But let's face it, uh, for those of you who are Christians, there are people who are operating in the prophetic, and if they gave certain things and dates that would happen, uh, they got it wrong. Um, they, you know, that, that's as simple as it is. Now, God may change things and, and you know, turn things around, and, and that's certainly possible, but what I'm saying is if, if these people are saying these things happened or would happen and give timelines and signs and this and that, you know, that's, that, that's, you know, that's wrong. Uh, um, and, and I think the body needs to own up to that. So this is where I'm going. This is kind of where we are today. And it troubles me as an individual because I see a lot of the people warring with each other within the body about this. So I'm giving you what I would say is uh, just a visual timeline. To the left of, if you're following me on video, I'm showing you a sign of a uh, sand dollar, the time is of, of the essence, and people who were praying. Or, and I say the, the world's ecclesia, which is the church of Jesus, not any specific denomination, just believers in Jesus around the world. And a lot of these people are praying and believing and speaking forth uh, for a what uh, what they're calling a Red Sea moment, where God will miraculously intercede and turn things around, and there would be a new Great Awakening. And and I say that that's kind of on the cusp of where we are today. Does this happen or does it not? Because what is around the corner is uh, what I believe would be the War of Gog of Magog eventually, and that that happens. In my personal opinion. Before the rapture of the church, there are those who feel like it's right afterwards, and they very well could be right. It's not 100% clear. I've given my reasons in the past, but it's very, very closely tied. So whether you know you believe it's right before the rapture or right after the rapture, that's kind of the timeline of, of what we're looking towards. So what a lot of people are pointing to is that there's nothing in the Bible that says that this great awakening will happen and they're kind of dissing these, these prophets that are saying this 
who are really standing, praying, and believing for America, for the world, uh, because there's great evil in the world and the escalation of, of, of what's happening. So, you know, my, my point is that God can certainly do this. God can obviously turn this around and, and pour out his Holy Spirit. And I think everybody is, is, is hoping for that. But whether that happens or not, this, this really remains to be seen. But people who are praying and believing the Lord for that, God bless them, you know, because we need, God hears our prayers. And, and you know, no matter where you're at or, you know, how far you want to go down the world of politics, how that impacts the culture uh, and the church and society. So, uh, you know, that's, I, I just felt I would be remiss if I didn't kind of openly point to the fact that this is where we are. This is kind of a, uh, a crossroads, if you will, of the modern day prophets. And I just wanted to close on this section before I get into the evangelist about Second Peter, where, you know, he says, knowing this, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget that by the word of God, the heavens were of old, the earth standing out of the water and in the water, by which the, wor the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. Uh, and this is not necessarily, well, it's not referring to, to Noah's flood, but the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word and reserved for fire until the day of judgment and the perdition of ungodly men. Peter is pointing out the fact that, the, you know, people are going to mock you. And so, you know, you're at this crossroads where I see part of the church is, is pointing to the fact that, you know, we're getting closer and closer and closer to the return of Jesus, inevitably to the seven years of tribulation. Uh, and no matter where, you know, if you believe in the rapture, whether that's pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, um, but they're pointing people that way. And then there's this dissension that's going on in the church uh, for those who are believing that we're going to see that next great awakening. And then finally, in, in terms of the timing of the return of God, Jesus himself says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. So Jesus is, is saying, you know, we don't know. But I would say that we know the season. It says we don't know the day or the hour, but we know the season. And this is why so oftentimes people are looking at prophecy today. What is interesting is I would say two, three years, even three years ago, you started talking about the second coming of Jesus and people were just a little leery. Do you really want to go into that subject or not? Now you find it everywhere. Everybody's talking about it. Everybody's pointing to and looking at the signs of the times. So these are the roles of the prophet. This is some of the modern day examples, biblical examples that I gave you. And ultimately, let's leading into the evangelist. So the evangelist is a New Testament term referring to one who proclaims the gospel of Jesus. There are three occurrences of this word in the New Testament. Paul exhorted the Ephesian church to walk worthy of their calling the exhortation stressed that the gifts given to each within the unity of the Spirit. Paul explained that the ascended Christ has given some apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. We covered that. But Paul was saying that Christ calls persons to these ministries and gives them to the church. So if you're called as an evangelist, if you're called as a prophet, if you're called as a teacher, then those are the gifts to enhance the body. And if you're not, and most people are not, you're called to other areas and other gifts and to impact, 
you know, your sphere of influence. And I always say this, and, you know, nothing, nothing surprising here. If the church body is all operating in the gifts that they're given, that's a healthy, sound, functional, impactful church. The meaning of the term indicates that the task of such a person is to function as a spokesperson for the church in proclaiming the gospel to the world. An evangelist is similar to an apostle in function, except that being an apostle involved a personal relationship to Jesus during his earthly ministry, uh, and examples of that is Acts 1, uh, 21 and 22. The evangelist stands in contrast to the pastor and the teacher. The former makes the initial proclamation, but the latter provides the follow-up ministry that develops maturity in the believer. Philip the Evangelist, Acts 21.8, supports the idea of evangelism as a gifted ministry to which Christ calls some in the church. More than one gift, and I believe you'll find this more often than not with the evangelist. Uh, more than one gift or ministry may be performed by that same person. Paul charged Timothy with his responsibilities as a pastor and a teacher, but it ex also exhorted him to do the work of the evangelist, 2 Timothy 4.5. An evangelist can refer to a person called to the distinct ministry, also to a function that may be performed by others. Then you have, what about the traveling ministry, Philip and Timothy? Probably no special office is designated, but the evangelist ordinarily combined his duty of proclaiming the gospel with such offices as that of a bishop, a deacon. Philip, for example, was both a deacon and an evangelist, and the apostles are also have said to have evangelized. What about the modern-day evangelist? And, you know, again, if you're following me on video, I'm giving you examples. I would say uh, the Azusa Street movement at the, uh, uh, at the turn of the 20th century. Uh, lower left, the Crusades in Africa by Reinhard Bonnke. Uh, you know, I don't know how many people eventually came to the Lord as a result of his ministry, but I believe it's in the millions, and, and, and I don't say that lightly. Uh, Catherine Kuhlman, you have uh, Billy Graham, his son Franklin Graham, con continuing his ministry. Uh, Heidi Baker. I'm pointing to John Lake because I, I said, uh, you know, you'll have different gifts I mentioned John Lake as an apostle, but he also, you know, he operated as a teacher. He operated as an evangelist. Um, and for those who are not familiar with John Lake, I strongly encourage you to look up his ministry uh, at the turn of the 19th century and into the early part of the 20th century. Then there's Mario Murillo. Uh, I, I am personally a huge fan of Mario Murillo. Uh, he has got the heart of the evangelist. He, he is... He's such a blessing for those. Um, I, I, I would encourage you to sign up for his blog. It's just, it's so spot on. He's in tune with what's happening in the culture. Uh, you know, he operates with different uh, uh, ministries and gifts, but his heart is evangelism. You know, that's really where his passion is. That's where his gifting, his callings are. Um, but he's a wealth of sound wisdom, in my, in my opinion. And, I'm, you know, he was praying and believing and interceding over California. And he had a dream. And he said, I hovered over the state and saw a river flowing from Red Bluff to south of Bakersfield along Highway 99. And he's come to have revival along the coast of California. As I speak now, I think it was about two or three weeks ago, had a tremendous outpouring in upstate New York. Uh, you know, people coming hours before it opened, standing room only outside of these massive, massive tents. And what was so wonderful is the churches were working together, 
all of the different areas that came together, people, uh, volunteers from the different churches, prayer ministry. Uh, and I, I don't know what the final number was, but I'm, I'm pretty sure if, if not close to a thousand, if not more came, came to the Lord. Um, and, and he's just, you know, what I would say is a, 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 a great modern day example. Also, Heidi Baker's doing some wonderful work in, in Africa. So these are just, you know, so, some examples of what I see are modern day evangelists. And, you know, they're pointing people to, to the cross. And uh, this is why I'm, I'm, I'm going to come here. We're called to be disciples. And I'm going to point to Matthew 28, 19. This is Jesus. Therefore, and go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Making disciples is more than getting decisions. We're commanded to make people followers of Jesus. Making disciples means to lead them to be born again, baptized, finally taught in the Christian faith. Make disciples is an imperative that demands the full attention of every New Testament believer. Uh, I'm just going to give you very quickly my example. I, you know, I, I, I've known the Lord pretty much close to my whole life. But I was raised a, a, a Roman Catholic, but it wasn't until I, I wanted more. I, I kept believing and searching. I, had, I said, there's got to be more to it. So I eventually, you know, wound up making a public declaration to the Lord some 30 plus years ago. And as a result, you know, constantly learning, growing, operating and, and you know, supporting different ministries and, and whatnot. But ultimately, it's about making disciples. It's, it's about helping people grow and become um, more mature, really. Uh, the process of learning the teachings of Jesus and following after his example is in the obedience to the power of Holy Spirit. Discipleship not only involves the process of becoming a disciple, but of making other disciples through teaching and evangelism. This is why I wanted to land here. Uh, we're all called to be evangelists of one sort or another. We're all, uh, you know, to to share our own personal testimony. And this is something that I found from Greg Ogden of Discipleship Essentials, just a powerful, powerful uh, lesson for me personally. It says, it says in his book, the authority to share the good news comes through Holy Spirit, who makes us witnesses. A witness is one who declares on the basis of, of a personal experience, what he or she knows to be true. So I give you the example of the cross of how I believe in what's helped me. I'll put it that way. And I, I believe that at first it starts if you're praying and believing for somebody or an area or a group of people or whatever, it starts with prayer. Um, and unless it's a spontaneous moment, but the three things that I find that are essential in this is one, that you have Holy Spirit with you, that you have the power uh, and the grace and the love of, of Jesus through the Holy Spirit inside of you. Two, share your personal experience. What, 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 is, what has the Lord done for you? How did you come to the Lord? What is the difference that it's made in your life compared to what you may have felt beforehand? And third, knowledge. Share the knowledge that you have. Share the knowledge about what, you, the, you know, what experiences th that you've been able to glean from what you've been able to learn from the Word of God. Share the Bible. Share what you've been given. So those things are, to me, essential in ourselves becoming uh, an, an, an evangelist uh, because we're all commanded to share the good news and, and, again, to make disciples out of one another. So those are the roles of the of the prophet and the evangelist. Hopefully 
you were able to uh, take some information here that that's helped. At least that's that's my hope and my expectation. Uh, on that note, I'd just like to again thank you for your time. This is this has been great. If you have any questions or comments, please by all means shoot me an email, russicoutlook at gmail dot com. Prayer requests, happy to take them. Uh, and remember, you've been listening to the Russic Outlook, but as always, just my opinion.